The scripture reading tonight is Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. So go ahead and turn there if you have your Bibles. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, Command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone." Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, Angels came and were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Jesse. What a crew. We were having our little pre-service meeting where we kind of button everything up and um, just the the welcome team um, out front, the the host up here, the worship team, y'all are just awesome to work with. And it's just cool that this is like kind of a big extended family. You don't have to be here long before you start becoming known and people know what's going on in your life. And, uh, and it's just, uh, it's, it's a great place, I think, for a lot of reasons. But one is that it's not a place where we hide from each other. This is a place where we come and we expose our hearts and we look into other people's lives, they look into our lives and we hold them up to Christ and we, one, thank him for what the work that he is doing in us and two, we ask him to be more like him. And so it's just, it's just wonderful that you would give up your Tuesday nights to be a part of all of this. Um, <clears throat> and we hope that the Lord is moving in your life and blesses you. We're in the Gospel of Matthew, and we, uh, we're going through, we're going to do two weeks in chapter four. This week is the first part, the temptation of Jesus. Next week is the choosing of the disciples, and, uh, and just like sneak preview, um, you know, they had to leave their jobs and those kinds of things. Next week, we'll be looking at like, is, is that whole passage prescriptive, meaning this is what it looks like now to follow Jesus? Or is that descriptive of here's some ideas of what it looks like to follow Jesus? So I think next week will be real nitty gritty, practical, um, very helpful for wherever you are in your journey with Jesus. This week, um, we're just going to just tackle all the things at once. Um, We're going to go through the temptation of Christ. We're going to look at spiritual warfare. We're going to look at the sexual revolution. Um, By Thursday, we ought to finish. Uh, and so it's going to be just a, a brief, brief trip through a whole bunch of things from uh, Jesus's wilderness journey to the temptation, this triumph over Satan, the spiritual warfare, and we're somehow or another going to work in the sexual revolution to all that. And I think it actually will fit and we're not like forcing it. So what I want to just start by saying to you is this, that Jesus offers the upside down kingdom. Personal liberty leads to captivity, and that's what Satan offers. While submission to God leads to life and freedom. Let me try to say that a little more plainly for you. What so often happens is the devil comes and offers you a very, a very appealing package of liberty, freedom, pursue you, but once you open that package, it contains death. Jesus, on the other hand, offers you to come and die, and once you receive that package, what you find is life. 
It's truly the upside down. And I think we're gonna see that as we see this, this interaction between the devil and Jesus and the three attacks that the devil makes on Jesus and Jesus' three rebuttals in these three arguments. I think we're gonna see that Jesus is promoting there is life and the devil, while it looks like he's offering life in the form of liberties, is really promoting death. And so I think that's the, that's the big idea behind this evening. So let me pray for us and we'll get rolling. Father, I ask that you would speak through your word, that you would bless this time that we are spending looking at your word. You would speak through your Holy Spirit. You would speak through me that my words would be your words and I wouldn't add to anything that you have to say. And Lord, at the end, when we have a time to worship and respond, that Lord, we would sense a freedom to honor you above all else because you gave the ultimate price to honor us and that was your life. And so we lift this up in Jesus' name, Father, amen. So Matthew 4, verse one. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Remember, the wilderness, we talked about this when we did an Exodus series last year. The wilderness is, is always a place in the scriptures where it's, sometimes it's literal. The Israelites were in the wilderness for 40 years. Sometimes it's semi-metaphorical in the book of Hosea, but the wilderness is always the place that God takes his people. That's important. God takes his people and it is uncomfortable while they are there. God takes his people to an uncomfortable place to reveal himself to them and to refine them so that he can lead them out of the wilderness into a place where they can have more impact for him. And so the wilderness is uncomfortable, but it is God-created and God-led. We have a group of about 30 young adults this week and next that are in the Holy Land. You heard about a mission trip that we have that's gonna be in Bethlehem. You'll see if you go on that trip, you'll see this exact place where Jesus went. It is terrible. Uh, it is like, it is hot. It is, there's no place to hide. There's, there's just like sun and rocks and that's all there is. And so, I mean, I, there's not like a stream out there. It's like, it is, it is a tough place. And who leads Jesus there? It's the spirit of God. The Holy Spirit leads him to a difficult place. Some of you, like that's the whole reason you came tonight. You needed to hear that because you're in a difficult place. And as you've examined your life, you've rolled it over. You've looked and you've looked and you looked and you're like, how did I end up here? And you keep coming back to, it just seems like I was following God and I ended up here. Well, maybe you're just in the wilderness. Maybe, maybe it's like, maybe you've just heard bad teaching that when you come to God, he makes everything easy. And that's not what's in the Bible. Paul says in some of my favorite verses in, uh, in Philippians 3 where Paul says, I count everything a loss compared to knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Everything is rubbish compared to knowing him. And then he says, I'll do anything to join in, this is so interesting, I'll do anything to join in the sufferings of Christ. Now that's like a Christianity level that most of us are not prepared to enter into. So suffering is a part of following the Lord, but just don't, don't get scared away just yet. Everybody has suffering in their life. We just get to do it for a greater cause and to know the Lord better. And so the spirit leads him into the wilderness and he's going to be tempted by the devil. There's, again, some more bad teaching that's out there in Christian circles that like, if you're really walking with God, you can avoid temptation. That is just not true. And, and now there's all kinds of verses. We'll look at a few later tonight about resisting the devil and how he ro roams around like a lion looking to devour folks. Um, the one verse we won't look at, Paul says, when it comes to sexual sin, he says to flee that. Like we don't need to put ourselves in tempting spots, but there are times that we get enticed by the devil. And part of the reason that Jesus is in this moment in Matthew 4 is because he can relate to every one of us. If he had never been tempted by the devil, imagine your prayer life. Lord, I feel really tempted to do this thing. I wanna do this thing. Everything in me is pulling me that direction. That prayer would just bounce off of deaf ears or unsympathetic ears. And, and we have 
a God who steps out of eternity into time and flesh that he might relate with us. Jesus is more than comfortable to sit next to you in the wilderness with his arm around you and the devil in your ear because he's been there. And so that's the scene here. This is grown man Jesus, baptized Jesus, about to start his ministry Jesus, but there's one more thing he needs to do before he officially starts his public ministry, and that is go through this time. And verse two gives us some more clues. Verse two says, and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Well, obviously, you're gonna be hungry after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, but before we get to that part, let's talk about the 40 days and 40 nights. 40 is such an interesting number in the Bible. Uh, It rained on Noah for 40 days and 40 nights. And then when Noah got done with, uh, with being saved through the water in the flood, he and his family come off the ark, what does Noah do? He gets drunk and there's sin. And so we have 40 days and 40 nights, but also tragedy. Moses is led into, well, first of all, he flees into the desert. This is another 40, but it's 40 years. He flees into the desert for 40 years after he kills an Egyptian. And then he goes back and he leads the Israelites through the wilderness for 40 years. But there's two other interesting 40 moments. Actually, there's three interesting 40 moments in in his life. One is that, did you know when he got the Ten Commandments, when he got those two tablets of stone, it's 40 days and 40 nights that he is before the Lord up on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments. So this 40 is like very, very important in the scriptures. And Not only that, but after the Israelites sin, in Deuteronomy 9, 18, it makes a reference to this. After the Israelites sin, he spends another 40 days and 40 nights laying on his face, fasting and praying that God would have mercy on the people he's led. So 40 days and 40 nights of hearing from God, 40 days and 40 nights of fasting and seeking the Lord, Now, that is definitely a picture of what Jesus is doing here. And then, you know, the story of the 10 spies, when they go into the promised land, they spy it out, and Joshua and Caleb are the only two faithful ones. They're gone for 40 days and 40 nights. Most of these stories of 40 end with something tragic that happens, or in the midst of the 40, something tragic happens. When Moses is on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights, getting the word of God, the people are building the golden calf. Moses has to spend 40 days and 40 nights fasting because the people sinned. The spies go out for 40 days and 40 nights. They come back and eight of the 10 turn the whole population away from pursuing God by saying, those people are too big and their houses are too strong. We can't take that land over. And so we see tragedy in all these 40s. Now, what does Jesus do? He always comes to redeem. He's gonna do 40 days and 40 nights right. So that's the the situation. The 40 days and 40 nights are over. And now once they are finished, he's still there. So we don't know if it's like the end of day 40, the end of night 40, but it's, it's somewhere right when that is finished. And verse three, and the tempter came and said to him, If you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And I'm gonna pause there before I give Jesus' answer. Isn't, Isn't that how the devil always works? With a question. You remember Adam and Eve in the garden? He came up to Eve and he was like, did God really say that you would die if you ate from that tree? I mean, did he like really say that you would die if you ate from that tree? He always starts with a question and he's always questioning the order of things. He's like, you surely won't die. God is not telling you the full story. And once they ate, they didn't die instantly. So there's like a little bit of truth mixed in with his questions. Aren't you the son of God? 
Well, the answer is yes. There's truth in his question, but the question is never to lead someone to the truth. It's to lead them away from the truth. This is like the scheme of the devil. This is how he works. If you're looking for some practical application, this is how the devil still works today. When you are tempted by the devil or by one of his demons, this is how he works. He begins by getting you to question And one of the first things he does is begin to get you to question like the order that God set up. And he's always like subverting, like who's really in charge? Aren't you the son of God? He's now left a triune being. There's no Holy Spirit involved. There's no God the Father involved. He's putting Jesus as the penultimate. Aren't you like the guy who's really in charge? Eve, aren't you the one who's really in charge? You take care of this garden anyway. Enjoy some of the fruit. And he's always got this assumption in his questions that we won't really be happy until we get what we want and we're in charge. And he's so good at massaging that idea into us that it's no wonder we fall so frequently I remember this, this vividly. The, the, I think one of the first big spiritual attacks in my life. I was 16 and I had a license. That's like a terrible time in life. They should not give 16-year-olds license. Like that was like a bad choice. And so like I get a license and then I have a car and I have a girlfriend. You can see where this is going. None of this goes anywhere good. And like they shouldn't let girls out of the house either when they're 16. Your dad should have all just locked you away. Or maybe the boys should have just been locked away. Segregation of uh, genders for like four, five, 10 years. Um, it would just be healthier. And so um, anyway, I just think like it's like, a, it's like an uncomfortable spot to be in. So I'm 16 and all of these questions come at me. Does God really want you to wait till marriage before you're like hooking up with somebody? I mean, aren't you like 16? Don't you like know some stuff? You were so dumb when you were 16. Like you don't know anything. Like you, you don't get that dumb again until you're like a sophomore in college. And then it's after that that you start to come out of it. Um, but I just remember that there was this, this real pull on me to pursue my liberties and my happiness. And the promise I kept hearing in my ear is that would make me happy. And the next few years of my life, that's what I did. I pursued my liberties and my happiness, and I found myself in a suicidal spot. I was doing everything I wanted, and nothing that made my spirit rise to rejoice. Such an interesting deal. That is exactly how Satan works, the tempter works in his attacks. So if, if I'm gonna have a little scorecard, I've got a little, a little scorecard here. This is, maybe it's not a scorecard, but just these, these are the arguments, I think. I think the first argument that the devil, that Satan, the tempter that he puts up is very simple. Nope, that's the wrong, that's the wrong form of that one. They sound the same in English. There we go. I shouldn't have talked about 16-year-olds being dumb. (laughs) I think the first argument that Satan gives is the way you're really gonna be happy is if, if you know you. You're really your true, authentic self. You are the son of God, right? Well, if you are, why don't you turn these stones into bread? Jesus Flex your muscles, man. Show me how awesome you are. Be your true, authentic self. And I think what what happens here is very interesting. Uh, Jesus then quotes scripture. And before we get to verse four, there is something that I think is important to point out that I had not thought about until I was studying this passage for this evening. And I've taught this passage before. There's no sin in Jesus turning the stones into bread. 
Now this, I have not fully fleshed out. This is like my Tuesday night confession to you. Um, I have not fully fleshed this out. This would be something fun for you to talk about in your small groups or on your way home tonight. But like, there are definitely times that just because something is not sin, if you do it, you are giving in to the devil. This is, start, turning a stone into bread is a very neutral act. Now for me, it's like very difficult. I would assume for you too. Um, that would be a great party trick. Uh, anybody got any rocks? Uh, and so like, but I do think that like, it is, it is this moment here of, this is not a sin to do this thing in and of itself, but it is a sin in this moment. And that's where we need spiritual discernment. And that's why in a few weeks, we're gonna go into a spiritual discernment series. But this is very important. And Jesus answers him in verse four and says, it is written that man will not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. So what we see is Jesus referring to Deuteronomy 8.3. He's quoting from the Bible back to Satan. And Deuteronomy 8 is a very interesting chapter. Deuteronomy 8.3, though, is this idea that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. You see, Jesus responds to Satan with the scriptures. Jesus reveals that life is found in following God. And Jesus realizes that God has given us a map to follow him in the scriptures. I underlined in my Bible the two words, every word. I'm doing a 90-day reading plan called Every Word. And in 90 days, you read every word of the Bible. There's a few dozen of you in the room that I think are about to finish this 90-day reading plan yourselves. Kevin Terrell on the front row. Are you about done? Kevin's on like day 82. This man's like ahead of schedule. Um, and so like 82 days, he's almost done with the whole Bible, every word. And what you start to see is that every word is God breathed. Every word is important. And Jesus himself is affirming that every word is there for a reason. And so I think what Jesus, his rebuttal is that I listened to the words of God and God called me out here to pray and fast and it's not over yet. And you, you call me to show off, which I could do, but you're not God, so I don't listen to you. I think Jesus' rebuttal is pretty simple. I think his rebuttal is no God. In our world today, there's very little press on knowing God because the view is that he is oppressive. And the view is know yourself. And the only problem with that is that how can you know the created thing and what all it's supposed to be and do without knowing the one who created it and why they created it in the first place? And then there's a second attack because that one failed. And the second attack starts in verse five. I'll read five, six, and seven. And then the devil took him to the holy city, that's Jerusalem, and put him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test so going back to the, to the pad here, uh, I think the second attack of the devil to Jesus and again to us today would not be, it's, it's first know yourself and second, it would be trust yourself. Aren't you the son of God? Jump off. You can do it. Now that's hard to translate for you and I because we wouldn't be tempted necessarily to jump off of a building to show that we're something, but there are these ways that we are, are tempted. And, and here's the problem. 
Satan then uses a verse. He uses a verse from Psalm 91. He will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. This is where it gets tricky because when you start getting into the word, when you start reading the Bible, when you start digesting this book, you will, you, the, the word will come to mind often. You'll be, you'll be at like quick trip and you're like, the Bible verse is in my head. Like you're, it's like bizarre. And then it's like very practical. You're like about to get in an argument with a family member. Um, and, and, and all of a sudden, you know, you're like, James will pop into your mind. Be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. And you're like, get out of here, James. Uh, like like you, all, these, like all these different verses will start flooding your mind. And you'll, you're, you, on one hand, it's like, it's like oh, I kind of wish I didn't know those um, in this moment. But on the other hand, it's like, this is incredible. My mind is being renewed and transformed. And what happens then I can know the good and pleasing and perfect will of God. But what happens when a verse comes to mind or a verse is used and, and it doesn't fit? I remember when Heather and I were engaged, there was this couple and they were like half joking, maybe half not, I'm not sure, and, uh, and the wife said to Heather and I, she was like, you know, the Bible doesn't say don't mess around. It says don't have sex before you're married. And we were like, that's not what we needed to hear right now in this moment of great weakness and temptation. When you get engaged, your whole world goes from like all the stuff that was like black and white turns into this like gooey gray. And you're like, elopement is beautiful. Let's make this happen like now. We don't have to tell our parents. We can just still do the wedding thing. But like as a Christian, all the stuff that's black and white really gets gray and it's like muddy and it's very confusing. And that was like, in that moment, that was like the last thing that we needed to hear. But all of a sudden I was like, well, she's kind of using scripture. And so it made me go back to the scriptures. And it actually was a good thing for me. And again, I think they were, half joking, half serious, let's call it mostly joking, a little serious, giving that advice. But still, they were using the Bible to like, tell me like to fornicate kind of things. And I was like, that's all I needed. Um, and so, but then I went back and I looked and I'm like, oh, she's wrong. And it made me ask, why is she wrong? Why does God value sex and sexuality so much? And it was just an interesting journey and it was a good journey. But Jesus also quotes scripture back, and he says, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord, your God, to the test. You see, the way you know, and I wanna make this, I wanna make this like as clear as possible. The way you know if you're using this book correctly is who it's about. This book, and I've said it before, and Lord willing, I'll say it again and again and again. This book is not about you. This book is not about me. If on Tuesday nights, you're like, I just need to hear a word for me. Like sometimes we need that. We need, to help. we need help making a decision. We need help deciding something. We need help doing something. Like sometimes you need that and that's okay. But if you open this on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, and you're like, where am I? You're gonna be really let down because this book isn't about you. It's about something way better than you. It's about God. And, and to quote a Matt Chandler line, it's, it's when, you read, when you read David uh, and Goliath, like you're not David. And Goliath isn't your boss. Like, like, do you see what I'm saying? That's how we read it. We hear the story and we're like, that's right. My boss, nine foot tall, cursing at me. I'm gonna cut his head off. Like, that's like, that's, that's how you're gonna read that story? That's not what it's about. Like, over and over again, you're not Joseph, you're not Moses, you're not Paul, you're not, you're not Lydia, you're not Mary Magdalene. Like, now you may find part of your story in their story, and that's good. But the book's about the Lord, and the reason Satan used the verse wrong is because he made the verse about Himself, He made the verse about Jesus as a, as a man defying the Trinitarian role that he was to play. And when I make the verse about me, I just lost it. 
And Jesus goes back and he says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. He trumps the scripture that's taken poorly with the scripture that's taken correctly and that's always a win. It's it, some of the three of the most famous verses, by the way, if you're looking for like examples, um, and some of you know these off the top of your head, Philippians 4.13, Jeremiah 29.11, Isaiah 40.31, you're like, all I gotta do is just like to win that football game, baby. Paint Philippians 4.13 on my face. Um, all I got to do is like, I know God wants me to have a good life. Jeremiah 29, 11. Um, Isaiah 40, 31. I'm really tired. The Lord's going to let me soar like an eagle. Like, y'all, that's, in fact, Isaiah 40, 31. If you want something to read before you go to bed tonight, read Isaiah chapter 40. The weakest verse in the whole chapter is verse 31. Because that's when it goes to you and me. And the whole rest of the chapter is about the grandeur of God. See, Satan's use of scripture was a perverting of the scriptures to make much of self and less of God. And Jesus responds calmly with a little verse from Deuteronomy chapter six, verse 15. So the argument from Jesus is no God, trust God. This is a man who knew he was going to a cross. And then the final argument from Satan. I'll read you the verses, verses eight through 10. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and he said to him, all of these I'm gonna give you if you'll just fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, I like to think at this point, this is like where you kind of read the Bible with like maybe a little bit of liberty. Um, Not like liberty where you like change words and stuff, but I like to imagine things that are happening. This is where I imagine like Jesus is tired and he's been like teleported different places and, uh, and he's up on this mountain. And I like to think that Jesus was like about to throw hands. I like to think of like fired up Jesus in this moment. The one where you're like, oh, I didn't know he had that in him. Because there's an exclamation mark in my Bible when he says, be gone. I like to think that the lion turns into the lamb or or the lamb turns into the lion at this moment. You see, there's no match between these two. We don't worship a God who's like running just barely ahead of his competitors. In a word, Jesus can do away with this guy. And he stands, I like to think that he stands up and he gets in his face here and he says, be gone, Satan, for it is written that you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. What a cut, what a deep cut. This is the angel of light that rebelled and took a third of the angels with him and walked out from God because he couldn't bear the thought of having to serve God. And he knew in the end that would be his demise. And Jesus just sticks it to him. He says, you worship the Lord your God only. I I love that in this moment, Satan's argument is, is so pitiful. His argument is worship yourself. Now, this, this is like the most obvious attack. This is like, if you're a football fan, this is the hook and ladder play. Um, this is like, this is like the, trying to throw the uppercut when you're a little dizzy. This is the Hail Mary in the fourth quarter with no time left on the clock. But if it works, if this works, then he wins. If you, if you run the hook and ladder, there's like a 99.9% chance it doesn't work. But if it works, you're scoring. The Hail Mary, you're scoring. The uppercut, other person laying on the floor. He's throwing, this, he's throwing this one out there as best he can. This is that moment when like you are committed. You are so committed to Jesus. You leave a Tuesday night. You leave a Sunday morning. You've been worshiping. Your hands are up. You are, you, you are gonna break up with him. Like you are going to, and you know you are because he is bad. And you're like, I am leaving and I'm committed and I'm gonna break up with him. He's a bad man. And, or you're like, that girl, that Jezebel, she's been dragging me down. 
I'm gonna cut her loose. Like you're like committed. You're like, you know what? I've been, I've been in a bad job and it's taken me away from God and I'm quitting tomorrow. I'm quitting tomorrow. Like, you know what I'm talking about? This is that moment where you're like, I'm doing it. And then, and then Satan has one of these weird moments. They're so outlandish. Like they're so outlandish. Bow down and worship me. That's all you gotta do and I'll give you these kingdoms. It's like super outlandish. But you know what? For us, this one works like all the time. He throws in one of those weird moments and all of a sudden, all the decisions you made out the window and you got 10 reasons on your pros and cons list, 10 more reasons on the pros than the cons on why you ought to stick with what you're doing because he will get saved. Like he will become a Christian one day and you're his only witness. Bless him. And you know what? She is, she is not that bad. She has those other two boyfriends. She's not that bad. Like, I love her. And my boss, like, it's a good job. It's a good job. We sell pagan books and do other kind of terrible things. We, we traffic drugs, but it's a good company. I should stay there. I should stay there. Like, I mean, it's like, it's really, if you were to put it down on paper, it's that ridiculous. I know because we've talked. I've had some conversations with you where you're like, afterwards, you're like, I can't believe. I've done it too. I've had those moments where I'm like, how in the world did I go from hand-raising, praising God, to like going back to that? As a dog returns to his vomit, so a man returns to his folly. It's the most obvious attack. And it so often works. And it did hit Jesus Honestly, those attacks, they hit us like right in our felt needs. And Jesus' need, if he could have a need, he definitely has a want. But to put it in human terms, his need is to have the world worship him. To have all the kingdoms worship him. Because what does that mean? That means he's redeemed them. They're safe. He's bringing them home. In Matthew 23, the, the one of two times that he weeps, he weeps over Jerusalem and he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I've longed to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you refuse to come to me and you're gonna meet your demise because of it. He longs to, to have us worship him because he knows that's the only true good thing. And it means that we've traded the lie of personal liberties, which actually equal captivity for his death and us dying with him, which equals life. He knows that, that, that he's won us. That's why he says in Matthew 11, 28 and 29, that's why he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. But he's not willing to sell out for it. So Jesus, his third response his first is know God. His second is trust God. And his third, and it's as simple as I'm making it out to be here, is worship God. Jesus' responses are still the same today. The devil, the tempter's responses are still the same today. Know yourself, trust yourself, worship yourself. Jesus, know God, trust God, worship God. And then he's gone, and the angels, they come and they minister to him. And Jesus, as we talked about last week, he's tired, but he is brave and he is kind and he is victorious. For the first time, a human on earth faced the devil and won. And for the first time, a 40-day and 40-night moment has come and gone. And even in the aftermath, no harm occurred because he is the greater Adam, the greater Noah, the greater Moses, the greater Elijah, the greater Israel. This is a moment of deep victory. And this entire encounter is a picture of spiritual warfare. 
It's not just when you watch, as John Vogtenauer and Kate were talking earlier today, it's not just when, when you watch like Paranoia um, or whatever the films are where the people show up in the room and they, they like jump out and get you. Those are demonic movies. Um, and we could talk about that later if you wanted. But like, it's not just in those moments. The devil, the devil is, is, is prowling around 1 Peter 5, 8, if you want to write that down, be alert and sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. James 4, 7, submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. This is all spiritual attack, and it happens all the time, not just in scary movies and late at night when it's dark. Ephesians 6, 12, at the end of the chapter or the passage, I'm put on the spiritual armor of God. It says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against rulers and authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. All these verses teach us that the devil is real and he is out there and he is after you, but greater if you are a Christian is he who is in you than he who is in the world. The one who is in you, the spirit of the one who is in you is the one who said, be gone, Satan. In Revelation 12, 10, and in John 8, 44, we find out a few more details about this accuser. In, in Revelation 12, 10, it says that he is the accuser of the brethren. He stands before God night and day and tells him how terrible you are. And sometimes he stands beside you and the demons stand beside you and tell you how terrible you are. In John 8, 44, we find out that his native language is lies. And so I told you in the group me that we were gonna also hit on the sexual revolution and you're like, how in the world is that gonna happen? Just like this. So recently, I just finished... Carl Truman's book, Strange New World. He has another book that he wrote before Strange New World. I did order two copies and they were gonna be at my house at like 2.15 today and then it was 3.15 and then it was 4.15. They arrived while we were here. Um, so next week, I'll give away two copies of Strange New World. But Carl Truman um, is a, a modern philosopher, a Christian philosopher, and, uh, and he wrote this book, Strange New World, after he wrote the book, um, the, Rise and Fall of the, the Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self um, is good like hurricane protection. You put it in the middle of your house, just right in the middle, and no matter how hard the winds are, your house will never go anywhere. And so one of his friends said, Carl, your book is great. People won't read it because it's so big. And so he wrote this book, Strange New World, and basically condensed his book into about a tenth of what the first one was. So it's good for people like me. And, uh, and so I've got a couple of copies to give it to you next week. But in that book, what he does is he traces the history, the last 200 years of sex in the world. And he, he portrays this incredible picture of how we've had this modern sexual revolution. And so I'll just read you a statement from an interview that he did. And in the statement in the interview, it's, 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 this is him speaking. It's a direct quote. You know, when somebody quotes you directly, there's not like the sentences usually aren't perfect. So just bear with me. Well, the question is, how is it that the statement, I am a woman trapped in a man's body, has come to make sense? Not just to university academics who deal with these kinds of things, but to the ordinary man, woman, boy, and girl in the street. You tracking with me so far? If, if I said to you, I feel like I am a, a woman trapped in a man's body, you would all have some sort of, of ability, social ability, to be able to say, I know what he's saying. I understand what he's saying. You might not can like relate to me, but you're like, I've, I've heard that idea before. How in the world... Is that a thing now when it was like a generation ago, it would have never been a thing? So that started him, that idea to write this book. And he said, imagine going to your doctor 70 or 80 years ago and saying to them, doctor, I think I'm a woman trapped in a man's body. Almost, can you imagine your grandparents when they were like 15 going to the doctor and saying this. It would not have been a good day for them. That almost certainly your doctor at that point would have said, well, that's a problem. And it's a problem with your mind. So we need to work on your mind and bring it into conformity with your body. 
If you go to the doctor today, almost certainly your doctor is going to say to you, well, that's a problem with your, I lost my page. Where did it go? Four, three, five. There we go, it was in my hand. That's a problem with your body and we need to bring your body in conformity with your mind. And so then he goes through and he says, hey, look, how did we get to where the, the mind and the feelings are the most important thing versus like genetically how we're created? How did we even get there? And so he traces Marx and his political ideologies and then Nietzsche and his, uh, his philosophies and then Freud and his like pleasure-based philosophies. Uh, he talks about Wordsworth and some other authors and poets. And he, he takes about 200 years of history and he tracks it and he says, this is how we slowly began, even though we might not can quote Nietzsche or Marx or, uh, or Freud or Wordsworth off the top of our head. We might take a little bit of Googling to figure it out. He said, just because you haven't studied all of them intensely, it doesn't mean that their ideas haven't crept in through society. And now society as a whole embraces these big ideas. And that's what's happened in the last 200 years. And Saturday afternoon, I was finishing the book and as I was finishing the book, I kept thinking, this book is so good. Everybody ought to read this book. This book is so good. It's so helpful, um, especially if you're a thinking Christian. Like, this is like really, really good. But there was this nagging thing in the back of my mind of, I, but I think there's something missing. What is it? And I was, I, was, I was working in the yard and I was like walking around and I was thinking, what is missing in that book? And then it hit me. All the spiritual now, to Truman's defense, he's, he wasn't writing to show the spiritual warfare that had taken place. He did a very good job in writing what he was writing, but maybe to tell the full story. What happened with Marx and Nietzsche and Freud and Wordsworth and all these other folks is that they had the tempter coming to them and they believed the ideas of know yourself, trust yourself, Worship yourself. And they did. And then the next one, know yourself. Trust yourself. Worship yourself. And the next one, know yourself. Trust yourself. Worship yourself. Satan doesn't have to be creative because we're not that complex. And it worked. And the reason we have the modern sexual revolution that we have, yes, you can trace it historically through some of these key figures in history. But the tempter himself is in the backdrop of every one of those moments. Spiritual warfare is real to the point that it has affected our whole culture, even globally. And look how radically it's been affected even in the last 15 years. Show of hands for who started off with like a flip phone. Okay, show of hands for who had a razor. Yeah, that was a great phone. All right, some of you were like, what? Yeah, you missed it. Um, but I did start off with a Nokia brick. I bet it's still working if you could ever find it. Um, they, those things don't die. Look, I, I call this, what happens in this moment? When we start realizing I've been knowing myself, I've been trusting myself, I've been worshiping myself, and we see that there's a better way because we see that what we've embraced is actually leading to death. And Jesus steps in and says, I too have been tempted. And I passed the test. Come and let me get you out of that class. No more tests for you in that. Let's get you away from the tempter. Let's have you be born again. And the offer of death, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ in me. The idea of death in Christ comes to you. And all of a sudden you realize in that death, there really is freedom. But the reason so many folks turn back at that point, I call it the triple S, the spiritual Stockholm syndrome. You start, to, you start to sympathize with like, but everybody lives like this. Everybody does this thing. And, and I could be really isolated. 
And you look around and if everybody's doing it, why is the world still going? Why isn't everybody just jumping off cliffs? It can't be that bad. And the vast majority of the world, as Noah was telling us during the announcements, the vast majority of the world denies Christ or has never heard of Christ and lives their life knowing, trusting, and worshiping self. And it results in this colossal misery. But because the people I work with and live with and go to school with and go to work with and go to the grocery store with and go to the gas station with, and I've said gas station a bunch tonight, go to the gas station with, go to the, go to the movies with, all those people, because we're all in this like colossal misery together, maybe it's not that miserable. And Satan wins. Jesus, though, he offers the upside-down kingdom. Personal liberty leads to captivity. That's what Satan offers. While submission to God leads to life and freedom. He knew that we couldn't stand the test, so he endured it instead. And he did it in style. Starving and sweating out in the desert and still coming out unscathed. Now that is a man. Jesus offers us to know him. He offers us to trust him. He offers us to worship him. Jesus offers us this truth to set us free. And let's remember this all took place in the wilderness. He was in a wilderness led by the spirit and some of you are in that same spot. We have a decision to make. We can know and trust and worship ourselves or we can know and trust and worship the Son. If you've had enough of the disappointments of self, Jesus is showing us he passed the test and offers us a better way. Death in Christ means life for us. I want us to pray and worship together. And as we worship and sing and thank the Lord, confess things to him, there'll be a prayer team in the back on both sides that would love to talk with you, love to pray with you. Please take advantage of that. Let's pray now. Father, I thank you so much that you sent your son. I thank you that Jesus showed us the ultimate path is to know you, to trust you, to worship you. Lord, I thank you that Jesus passed the test when we can't. I thank you that he offers life when all we have is death. I thank you that he casts Satan out because we don't have the strength to. Lord, would you give us the strength to receive the life in Christ and to walk away from the life of death? It's in Jesus' name I pray, Father. Amen.